On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Banjoverse. I am your host, Enda Scal. There's been a brief hiatus for a number of months, but the podcast is back and with a bang, starting with the incredible Winifred Horn, fiddle player supreme, founding member of Solace, and for me, one of the most influential bands and musicians that I've ever encountered. This was a joy to listen to Win and listen to her incredible story, family heritage, the whole lot. I know that you're going to enjoy this one, so just sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Winifred Horn. Horn. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always love to say that a musical hero, and um, because Solace was such a huge part of my musical formation. And then, when you were a kid, you mean when you were growing up as a kid? Oh, when I was like two, <laughs> when I was two and three. And we were we were seasoned veterans at that stage, right? I think yeah. you were you were probably kids as well. But I think so. you know, I I, I got to, you know, and I, so I've met you. And I met Seamus, and th- then you know they say don't meet your heroes, but when I met my heroes, they turned out to be just really nice people as well as okay. incredible Thanks, musicians. So, where do you want to start? I, I, I'm you're so you, you're New York. I'm in New York now. Um, yeah. back back at the home place. Um, it's been a like you know yourself. It's been an odd, surreal couple of years, and uh, um you know, with the COVID and then my parents getting older and um, Solace taking the sabbatical uh, off the road and, and actually just from the band in general. So it's been a, it's been a, it's, it's been a strange couple of years for, for, for me, but, but nonetheless, very rewarding. And um, because I moved back home to New York, I was living up in just North of Boston there for, for many years and uh, my dad got sick. He had been sick for a while. Um, and mom had started to show signs of dementia. So they were by themselves in this house where I am now. I'm, I'm talking to you from the family home in Rockaway Beach, New York. And I moved back home. And it was honestly, um, it couldn't have been better timing for my family because I wasn't on the road. Solace had taken the break, which believe me, and I know you know this better than anybody, we needed to. It was time. Everybody was absolutely, completely, um, I don't know, exhausted 
burnt out. Uh, we can talk about that more later, but the, the, so, so I moved home to New York to take care of my mom and dad in 2019. And um, it was quite a change, but then of course COVID hit. So it didn't really matter where anyone was as long as you were home and safe and, you know, especially for my parents, like I, I was in lockdown with them for two years. Well, dad passed, dad lasted a year. I came home in 219, the, the fall of 219 and then COVID hit. And then dad passed away in September of 2020 in the height of the pandemic. He didn't die from COVID. He actually died from his cancer. And, uh, and then it was just me and mom and she was in full blown dementia, you know, in the, mi the middle part of that road. And, um, you know, it was just really surreal. And, but like I said, it was kind of, it was kind of this gift for me because I got to reconnect. I was away for so many years and uh, living out of a suitcase on the road. And, you know, um, I kind of looked at it as this, like the universe definitely puts you where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there, I think. Um, so I got to come home and really give my parents and be with my parents. And it was, wasn't was just a gift for them. It was a gift for me, too. A lot of healing took place um, for, for, for me and my dad, especially. And, you know, we can go into that more later, too. He was a huge influence on me, well, both as a musician and as a human. Was it, Was he a musician? He was. He was. He was a great musician, and uh, but he wasn't a traditional musician, traditional Irish musician. He was a jazz trumpet player and a pianist, uh, you know, uh, leaning towards classical piano. And he played, you know, mom and dad are from um, the east coast of Ireland. They're from County Wicklow, Arklow to be exact, count, uh, Arklow in County Wicklow. So as you know yourself, that wouldn't have been like a hotbed of traditional Irish music when they were growing up. It was more uh, show bands, uh, dance halls, opera, you know. Um, and uh, they, they, they were closer to the wealth. <laughs> in yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> They were closer to the wealth. They were. I'm not saying that my family was wealthy at all, but um, they were closer to that part of the country where you know the traditional Irish music wasn't as uh, prominent as it would have been down west or up north or even in the sunny southeast. Like, so it wasn't until Dad and Mom emigrated to New York. And it's a longer story there, too, because my father was actually born in New York under quite um, extraordinary circumstances. My my father's people were boat builders and uh, shipping. I wouldn't say shipping magnets, but they were they were the builders of the boats. So big boats. They were dad was working. He apprenticed down in the Arklo shipyard and his family before him. Um, they were from the fishery in Arklo a really special, amazing place, the fishery. You can read about it, a really uh, amazing people, fishermen, boat builders, um, you know, seafaring people. And so anyway, so dad, uh, dad was born in New York because my grandfather had made the trip um, and spent, got, got stuck out in New York um, during all of World War II. Um, 
That was after dad was born, though, so I should backtrack a little bit. But anyway, granddad was out in New York and my grandmother came to visit New York to see my grandfather, but she was pregnant with dad and she got she fell ill and she had a heart condition and she ended up uh, having dad because she had to stay put with this heart condition. She ended up having dad in New York and um, it wasn't planned. Dad was born in New York and then probably, you know, six months later when she was well enough to travel again, the doctors here in New York told her that the climate in Ireland would be better for her. So their original intention, I think, was to stay in New York, but she took dad back to Arklow and dad was raised. He he was back in Arklow at six months and raised in Ireland Um you know, as, as, as Irish, as, as, as you or the next, um, and granddad stayed out in New York and then he got stuck in New York, um, during the course of the war and all that. And, uh, dad was raised with his cousins from America. The men sent the women back to Ireland. Dad was raised in Ireland and ended like 18 years later, a draft notice from the United States army showed up at the house in Arklow for dad. They found him. Not that he was hiding. They just didn't even think about it. It was like, holy mother of God, there's a draft notice here from the from the U.S. Army. And that prompted dad, obviously he couldn't ignore it and wouldn't, I don't think would have anyway, but prompted dad to have to get, get his, get his, get himself back out to New York. Meanwhile, he was dating mom. And so and they were young. They they had they started dating when they were like 13, 14, 15 in Arklow. And uh, there was no there was no doctors in Arklow that had signed them off with bone spurs. No, no. Oh, I don't went, go there. I went oh, there. Oh, you went there. Don't go there. This could be a bombastic podcast. You you go you're going there with me. Oh my goodness, I can't no. even. We'll get to that too. But I'm I'm trying to imagine. Have you a sense? Did you have a relationship with your grandmother to know what it was like for your grandfather to be in New York and Ireland? Like, I know that was common enough, but it seems so extreme nowadays, isn't it? So extreme nowadays, isn't it? And like, uh, you know, uh, the advent of the Internet and even making a phone call back then didn't even exist. It was letters and, you know, word of mouth and sending messages and notes back with other people. You know, if you knew that if my relatives like like all of us, you know, um, families who made the trek, whether it was to America or Australia or even England, for that matter, like England being close enough, it was still communication was go years without um, seeing people or, you know, even in some cases um, connecting um, through conversation. So, yeah, it was it was hard. I, I my grandmother died uh, a month before I was born. My father's mother. Um, because of that heart condition I was telling you about. So I never met, she's my namesake as well, Winifred Horn, knee burn. And uh, I never met her, but, you know, my family, dad, dad and his family, great storytellers and made sure that we knew everything about the family, um, who was born when, what they did. Most of them were boat builders and fishermen, but um, who who left Ireland? Who left Arklow? When? Why they had? Why they may have had to leave? You know, there was a couple that a couple of my dad's uncles that had to leave because they were. Um, how do I put this? I guess got in a little bit of trouble with the English, so they had to get out. Um, and 
made their way to New York. So yeah, it's a really colorful family story on my dad's side. Um, and he was a huge influence. But I was going to say to you, he wasn't, he didn't get turned on to traditional Irish music, believe it or not, Enza, until he got to New York. And, you know, when he started having the family, myself and my brother and my sisters, of course, the first thing he did was, you know, when we were old enough, was try to give us music lessons and dancing lessons. And it was really important, like for most immigrants, I think, to uh, keep his kids and family connected to their culture. Um, it was really important. So he got really turned on and fell in love with Irish traditional music. Of course, he knew about it, but because his kids now were taking fiddle lessons and in Kelly bands and Irish dancing, and he was driving us to all the feshes and the flaws, and he became completely consumed by it and actually picked up the fiddle. And he was a really talented man. Like he could, anything he put his hands on, he could create something beautiful with, whether it was building a boat or getting a tune out of it, you know? You have siblings? Did he? No, do you? Oh, I do. I do. I have a brother and two sisters and all played and all danced. And they were all fine, fine players and fine dancers. But I was the only one that thought it was going to be a good idea to try to make a living at it or make it a career. You know, and that that actually wasn't even the intention. You know, you don't I don't think you set out saying as a, as a youngster this, you know, I know you, I know, like, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep playing. But I never thought. Yeah, this is going to be a great way to pay the bills, you know? No, it just, it just, it yeah, just so keeps. What was your sense then being, you know, because you're, you're, you say you were born in America. Born in New York City in the same hospital as my father. Down on the Lower West Side, a place called St. Vincent's Hospital on the Lower West Side, where most of the people from his county would have emigrated to. There was a little hot spot, like. So did you feel, did you feel very Irish growing up or did you feel American? That's such a great question. And um, I felt very Irish because it's what I was hearing in the house, you know, and um, I always heard as a youngster, mom and dad talking about like home. Oh, we have to get we have to get home. We have to get the kids home. We have to get back home. And, and I remember asking them, I you know, when I could kind of figure out that they're not talking about here in Rockaway, New York, at the beach where where we are. They're they're talking about where where Nana is and where Granddad is and where all our cousins are. Ireland, you know, home where they want to get home. So it was. I may as well have like grown up. I may as well have grown up in Ireland because the house was so full of what your house was probably full of: music, dance, um, books, stories. Um, you know, this, this, this yearning, this like sort of loneliness from my parents, um, for, for their friends and their, you know, families. And so I think it's true. And the like immigrants sometimes hang on to the culture even harder than, than, because I remember going back some summers to Ireland and my Irish cousins would be like, what, why are you playing Irish music? You know? When I go back for the flaws or for, you know, the Oroctus in Dublin to dance, I'd be like, why are you guys, you're New Yorkers, why are you playing diddly eye? Like, and my Irish cousins called it that, like, and yeah. I was like, that's unbelievable. That's kind of really disrespectful. Like, this is our culture, you know? 
So yeah, it was uh yeah, I feel like I grew up Irish in New York, but there's also a, a, the other side of me that's 100% New Yorker, you know. Did did you feel your parents were they always lonely for home? Yeah. Yes. That's a that's a firm yes, and that's why I think they were so adamant and uh yeah, adamant that we were connected to the culture any way we could be because it made them feel closer to home because they were mixing then with other Irish parents of American born kids. Um some of who you know. I grew up with most of the, you know, most of the musicians from New York that I grew up with. You probably know because they're successful in their own right and making their mark and, you know, their parents were the same. And so my parents and their parents would have socialized together and reminisced and, you know, um it was it was community for them 3000 miles away if that makes sense mm. uh, it was a connection a really deep connection where they could you know reminisce. so what do you, do you have a sense in yourself of where the drive came from for you then to have a career as a musician like i'm 47 right and you can look back and go yeah i've been doing this for ages I started my first band. I gave it a name when I was 16, right? Uh-huh. And we, you know, we were playing in Galway, but like it was a band. Yeah. And I was, I don't remember that I had a drive to be in a band, but like I really did. But yeah. not every musician has that. In actual fact, I think very few have that. Yeah, that's an amazing um, and really uh, cool observation. Um, we can talk about it on 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 different levels. Like I always... Okay, so first off, music always supported me in some way that I couldn't quite identify. It provided me with this level of comfort and connection, even as a young kid, to this um, place that I feel really blessed and lucky to be able to connect to as an artist, right? Like, I, I, I knew that there was something... I knew that I, I knew that there was something more than just traditional um traditional education. Like and I have to also give credit to my father. He he made sure that we were aware that there was more than just learning your your maths and your science and your, you know, ABCs. And so I, the minute I started playing or dancing, um I felt safer more comfortable, more connected to, at that time, I didn't know to call it humanity, but I knew that it was a greater, this, this greater essence that I knew that I wanted to be a part of, that I felt safer there. And so like you say, and you, you started a band when you were 16, like I was, I was, uh, I was playing at 16. Oh God, I would, I wanted to be in a band. I fantasized about being in a band. Um, you know, I mean, I was taking at that point, I was taking classical lessons um, on the violin and the piano. Um, that was another sort of shift in things. But God, like music and listening to bands on the radio or or, or listening to my dad's record collection, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be I wanted to play. Now, when you said like a lot, not a lot of musicians kind of fantasize about being in a band that that's true because a lot some a lot of musicians fantasize fantasize about being soloists or 
you know, I don't know if that's where you're going, but like always for me, I felt like I really wanted to play with other people in a way that could produce that sort of, you know, wall of sound that completely turned me on, um, whether it was listening to Irish traditional music in the house, whether it was listening to like my dad's, you know, symphonic music or even, you know, rock and roll or, or pop music at the time. That's what turned me on was like the wall of sound coming off of a band's, um, yeah, off of a, an ensemble sound as opposed to like a solo uh, effort. Um, there was something always really appealing to me about that. And so, yeah, I, I, um, and yeah, it ended up happening. I mean, uh, I, I ended up playing in a few bands, um, you know, when I was a teenager here on the beach, like, you know, trying to play Allman Brothers covers or the Eagles or real beach music, you know? And so like, everyone was like, oh, well, Wynn plays the fiddle. We could have her do the Charlie Daniels part and blah, 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 and all this. And, but, and it was great. It was like, it was an outlet. It was we weren't making music at it. We were playing on the beach at bonfires and, you know, thinking we were going to be all that. And, oh, let's do a recording. And, you know, like any any teenager that's into music, you try to find ways to uh, connect with other teenagers that are into music. I mean, like you, I, I was I was yearning for that. And um, eventually it happened at, at a little bit later and later stage in my life, though. So were you were you were you shy as a teenager? Were you outgoing, introverted? Mm, I think if it's fair to say, a combination of both, definitely, and that's still the case. Like, I, when I talk to you about finding that comfort in the music, that's where I think I also found my confidence and my voice. So yeah, I was I was introverted, but I'm I'm also a pretty social person. But I found that the vehicle that music is helped me <laughs> sort of uh, be more social, um, be more connected. Um, but yeah, no, there's still a part of me too. Like as a teenager, I was I was I was constantly. Um, yeah, maybe doubting myself. And so um, that played into the introvert, introverted side of me. I didn't really want to share yet. I, was, I, I wasn't feeling like I was good enough to share yet. I wanted to kind of like not master anything, but get really good before. So I kind of, you know, I did isolate a lot and just practice and by myself. And um, so, yeah, I kind of have a memory of being introverted, but then also pretty social like when I was at regular school or like on the beach or, you know, I, I, I always craved, I love company, you know, and then obviously when I got older and came out of my awkward teenage years and, and started to realize how much crack you could have with other people, then I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> this is great. I'm going to, I'm going to really get good at socializing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I found music and being able to play well, gave me a legitimacy as a as that in those awkward teenage years when you didn't fit into lots of other circles. Absolutely. At, le at least you could go and hang out with the Macaulays in Middletown Albay and just play absolutely <laughs> ripping tunes for hours and hours. And and you wish the the bullies when you were 13 could see me now. <laughs> right. Right. I uh, yeah, I can totally identify and I'm sure a lot of our our peers and friends anyone that we know that have come up through this through the scene and through music 
Yeah, we can identify with that. Um, I was lucky enough, though, I never got bullied. Um, so, and I think that also, um, that also, well, look at it, your your experience through life definitely affects your musicianship or your, um, not so much your technique, but I guess, like, what, what you play, like, don't you, you play who you are and how you feel. So I, uh, yeah, like you, I, I kind of felt like, okay, you know, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to say I, I felt good enough to hang with the players that were playing well, that I, I have no, I have no problem saying that I knew I was going to be, I knew that if I kept going the way I was going, this was going to be my life. And I wanted to be really good at it. And I made sure that I practiced and, and tried to, I was like a little sponge, you know, I wanted to listen to everything. Not just Irish traditional music, but um, everything, mm. everything, music, just music. Like it just, it provided this, like, it was almost like uh, this bubble, this safe bubble, like what I can imagine like being in, in utero must feel like if we could remember what that felt like, you know, people talk about what that must feel like. It's like, everything is cool. You're, you're, you're totally safe. The sounds you're hearing are are keeping you alive. That's kind of what I feel like about music, you know, keeps me alive. So you yeah. you grew you grew up then in that fantastic melting pot with Joni Madden, Eileen Ivers, I assume. Yeah. I mean, wow, what what company, right? And more, oh. no doubt. Oh, and more, and uh, and you you know all of them, like yeah. So when I was growing up, um, actually Eileen and I, Eileen Ivers and I were the same age and were competitors when we were kids um, on the fiddle. Anyway, Eileen didn't dance, but um, so we were all moving in the same circles as kids. Um, Eileen was taking lessons from Martin Mulvihill. She was in the Mulvihill school and I was in the Maureen Glenn. Um, I don't know if you know Maureen Glenn. She was, oh, oh God, yes. Yeah, so she was uh, the, the daughter of John Glenn and he had a huge music school in the 60s and 70s, kind of running in the same circles with the Mulvihill, um, the Mulvihill gang. And Maureen ended up marrying a fiddle player by the name of Johnny Cronin from County Cork, I think Johnny was from. And then she, uh, Johnny passed and then Maureen moved back to Claire when she was a bit older and she married Martin Conley, Seamus Conley's brother. So Maureen would have been well connected with the music scene and she took over her father's music school when he passed away. So that's where I was. And there was a gang of us in that. And then Maureen, her school um, and Donnie Golden, my dancing teacher, they combined and made a dancing and music kind of like academy. And so that's where I was. I was in, I, cause I was a, I was really into the dancing. I really loved the dancing and, uh, you know, I'm not going to shy away from that either. I was, I was, I, I knew I was good at dancing too. So I was in my elements. I had the music and the dancing right there and I had a great dancing teacher and a great music teacher. And yeah, Eileen, Eileen was doing her thing and we were competing together at Feshes and, um, Joni, I don't remember meeting as a teenager or as a young kid. I met Joni well after I moved back to New York after my college years. But she would have been, you know, um, 
in the same age group um, and loads of other musicians. And uh, But like I remember playing against Eileen and us competing as kids from the time we were nine, ten. Um, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. And, and kind of being aware of each other's journey over all of the years, keeping an eye and an ear on each other, even though we kind of our paths diverged or not diverged. Yeah, that's right. Our paths separated and I went one way and she went another way. But like eventually we found ourselves back in the same community. Um, yeah, and like massive respect for each other as, 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 you know, women and musicians. So, so Cherish the Ladies, was that one of your first kind of professional ventures or outfits? Yeah, with, with Joni? The, yes, it was. In the in the traditional Irish music scene, it was. I had like kind of was trying to make a make my way through the classical world and uh, which kind of interrupted my, um, you know, back then there was this idea, this ridiculous idea that if you were playing traditional Irish music, and you were studying classical music, one was going to absolutely corrupt the other. So, you know, the, and this is where I ran into like a real head wrecker of a situation because I was playing both. And like the traditional Irish um, judges, adjudicators were knocking points off my marks at feshes and flaws because they were saying I, I was sounding a bit too classical. And, and my classical teachers were, telling my father not to let me play fiddle anymore, fiddle tunes, because it was wrecking my classical technique. And it was just ridiculous. And like, so um, I had to make a choice based on that idea, that ideology, which was ridiculous. And uh, at that time, I chose to go and study classical music full time. And, you know, listening to my elders saying, you can't play fiddle music anymore because it's wrecking your classical technique. It was absolute insanity and not true at all. Anyway, but that's what I did. So I was playing in string quartet. So they would have been my first ensembles and ex ensemble experience would have been string quartets and like the, the school orchestra and the conservatory orchestra and then thinking that's what I was going to do. Right. And then college finished and I ended up moving back to New York City as a young ha, um reckless sort of rebellious uh i want i was really rebelling against the classical world i had done a couple of auditions for um you know orchestras and things like that and the pressure and the nerves of steel that you needed to have to actually be in that world i just i just couldn't do it i was just it was it was uh crippling you know physically and emotionally Anyway, so I, I, I kind of settled back into New York City and I met a couple of friends and went out to some pubs and heard music again. I didn't have my fiddle with me, but I was getting to hear some great sessions and met up with my old dancing teacher, Donnie Golden, just for some social nights out. And then I ran into Joni Madden. And this is as true as God. Joni said, listen, I hear you're a great dancer. Donnie's telling me that you're a great dancer. Uh, Cherish the Ladies needs a dancer. Um, we're going on tour. And 
I had just gotten a job teaching at an elementary school up on the Upper East Side of New York. And I worked for a week at that school. And then I told them, I handed him my notice and I said, listen, I can't, I'm really sorry, but I, I'm going to take this gig and go away for two months. And that's how it started. I, I went away with Cherish the Ladies as a dancer. And then um, Eileen was playing fiddle with Cherish at the time. So this is, it's just so crazy how like our worlds collided again, you know? And I, in in my head, I was like, oh my God, I, I wonder if Joni knows that I play the fiddle or that I play the violin. Because when Eileen was leaving, they were looking for a fiddle player. And I think I had actually met Seamus Egan at this time. And Seamus, I met Seamus, so it all kind of overlaps. I had met Seamus at this place, this fiddle camp, music camp not Swananoa, but something like that called Elkins. And I was hired as a dancer to do workshops and teach some workshops as a dancer. And Seamus was down there as, as, as banjo and flute player. Oh God, sorry. Sorry, Edda, that was my phone. And uh, I had my fiddle with me down at that. And I hadn't played fiddle in years. I was afraid of my life to, to try it again for fear that I was going to be, you know, I don't know what do you call it when put in a box like oh she sounds too classical like whatever but I Seamus had his banjo and I had my fiddle and he was like Jesus take it out like and I started playing in some sessions down at this uh camp and that's how Seamus and I met and he was like you should keep playing he was like you should get back into this he was like this is sounding this is sounding pretty pretty decent like so you know how a lot of classical players, right, that were raised classical and then they try yeah. to play folk music and it always seems to, there's a jag with the rhythm. Yeah. So you were a fiddler who then went on and learned classical. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have that kind of conflict of trying to come out of, because classical music, I guess, there's a lot of strictness in, in relation to where the notes lie as, as somebody yeah. wrote them. I suppose, you know, as you know, Irish music is very, very loose. Right. If you, you know, because uh, right. I try and teach this a lot. Like if you were to write Irish music as it's written, it wouldn't make any sense. It would be almost unplayable. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, we can talk about that. You know, the learning, learning tunes off the sheet music as opposed to by ear. I mean, a combination of both is always welcome. But to your point about that rhythmic um connection or being able to sort of break back into that that feel really is what we're talking about the feel right I, I i also had an advantage over most classical players that try to do that because i was raised my first introduction was to irish fiddle and i was a dancer and a damn good one a damn good dancer so i had that always in me even when i was doing the classical I remember one of my really strict classical violin teachers, uh, Masako Ushioda, she was a great Japanese violinist. And she said to me that the only reason, well, one of the reasons that she took me into her studio, that she took me into her, under her wing, was because I had a really interesting way of um, perceiving the jigs in, in the Bach partitas. And Enda, I'm convinced that I was playing the jigs in the Bach partitas like I would be playing the jigs for for Irish dance to, as an Irish dance tune, right? So, like, the, it was constantly like this, you know, 
crossover, you know, I was getting the hang of both, but they were kind of running side by side always. But I will tell you, like when I came back and Seamus definitely was the one really as a musician that was like, holy moly, you need to, you need to like own it. What are you not, why are you not playing tunes for? He was like, it's there. He's like, just start playing again. You know, don't, don't like, and I was all like worried because I had let so many years go by and I had forgotten so many tunes and the repertoire was like blowing my mind. And I could, I had become so classically and in, like indoctrinated into the classical thing where my ear suffered because I was reading everything. Everything was put in front of you, you know? And so that took a long time. I mean, I'm still working on that all these years later, like. Um, but yeah, if it hadn't been for Seamus and sitting with him playing just for the fun of it, like, and I wasn't even playing tunes, he was playing the tunes and I was kind of messing around with like, um, you know, rhythmic bow stuff behind what he was playing because I didn't know the tunes. I had forgotten them. And then he'd pull out like an old favorite, like Mountain Road or, you know, Trip to Duro. And I'd be like, he was like, you must remember this one. And I was like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Let's play that one. And that's honestly, I have to say, and I will always give him credit for that, um, for kind of being like, yeah, this, this, this needs to be heard. Uh, keep doing it, right? And so then after that camp, I, I went back up to New York. And that's when Joni asked me to do the dancing thing. But Seamus and I had kind of already started to see each other in, you know, as as a couple. We were we had gotten romantically involved. And he was like, what? They're just hiring you as a dancer? They should be hiring you. You know, when then when Eileen was leaving the band, Seamus was like, T you know, what? they were asking all these other fiddle players like Liz Carroll and like a bunch of a bunch of our friends, a bunch of people that you know that you're friends with. And I was like busting behind the scenes like, I'm not going to say anything. You know, I'm not saying anything. But I was like, God, please just like, give me a chance. Like, and she did. Joni was like, you know, and then, so I was doing both. I was dancing and playing with Cherish after Eileen left. And I guess they were just kind of trying me out. Joni was trying me out to see if it was going to be, you know, okay. And I was having to play in my dancing costume, which was like, I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. I just want to wear my jeans and my boots and like kick ass on the fiddle, like uh, getting too old for this dancing nonsense. But so yeah, that's how it really started. So yeah, Cherish was my first, Cherish the Ladies was my first re-entry, I guess I should call it, back into the world of trad. And uh, I'm grateful to Joni for that too. Like, um, yeah. And then Sharon came along after that. I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, uh, what happened? I, I had played with Cherish for, for a couple of years and I met... This is crazy, actually, how the life and the universe. I was in, I think it was Patty Riley's, actually. And I was at a gig that Seamus was doing with Eileen Ivers. You remember, what was their, the band name? Remember, with Kamate and... I don't know. But... John, Doyle, Kama, John Doyle on guitar, Eileen Ivers on fiddle, Seamus Egan on everything, flute, banjo, whatever else. And this African drummer, percussionist called Kamate Denizulu. And I told you, so Seamus and I were dating at the time, and I would go down to this gig every Monday night at Patty Riley's. And on a break one night, the jukebox came on, and Sharon's 
first solo album, Sharon Shannon's first solo album came on. And I was like, what the hell is that? Holy moly. And it played. And 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 I, I don't know who I was with. I maybe even said it to Seamus. I was like, I want to play with her. I want to play with that person. That sounds amazing. Like that's because, you know, it was kind of arranged. It had like, um, you know, deadly tune playing, but it had all this cool like arrangements and, and backing and the album was produced really well. And I'm not telling you a word of a lie. A year later, I ran into Sharon and Donna and Trevor and whoever else, Mary, Mary Custy was playing at the time. We were at a festival in Boston and I was playing with Cherish and we were sharing a trailer with them backstage. And I was playing with Cherish and, Ch and I guess the guys heard the Cherish gig and I, I, I was leaving Cherish at the time. I had kind of given Joni my notice, like not knowing what I was going to do. I just didn't, I knew that I just wanted to do something else. And I'm not joking you. And uh, like a month after I left, I got a call from Trevor Hutchinson and John Dunford, Sharon's manager asking if I would be interested in joining Sharon's band. And then I was like, okay, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. I'm playing the fiddle now again. So that, that was that. And I did that for a couple of years and learned so much playing with Trevor and Donna. The, 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 they're like the, wouldn't you call them? I call them the freight train of yeah. traditional Irish, like accompaniment. There's no two. I mean, there are. We know loads of them, loads of musicians and friends of ours that are that do that for the music. But those two. And so that's I that's where I God talk about feel and getting back into the feel. You, you'd be you'd be. You'd be probably have to be deaf and blind not to be able to relate to that locomotive, you know. Yeah, so that I really helped a lot. And then. Isn't it amazing how well you play in front of amazing accompanists like Donna? And I've played with yes. Donna a few, only a few times over the years. And it's it's a memorable experience. John Doyle is another. Jim Murray is another. Yeah. You know, that you just play. You just play so much better. Absolutely. So much better. And so much, in some cases, differently. Not for this, like you're still yourself, but you know whatever the guitarist or pianist or the uh, 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 the, the backer, which geez, don't I I I I hate that word because they they do so much more than back, right? I yeah. hate that word. It's anyway, yeah, it's you're right. Eleva elevation, yeah. But you can't Absolutely. call them you can't call yeah. them eleva elevators either because that is just doesn't sound right. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. But like back to your. Back to your observation about like ensemble playing and like the band wanting to 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 be in that essence and being in that situation musically. That's where we're that's where we get into the real, like, you know, the the deep, nitty-gritty, the bed, the foundation of like what a band can express and do. And I mean, I know you know that from your brilliant years with We We Banjo Three. I mean, Jesus, like that is where it's at, like the, the ensemble, the sum of its parts. Um, and to me, that is always like the most uh, rewarding musically is when you're in an ensemble that is like feeding off each other and supporting each other musically, 
Um, you, you know, you have each other's backs. You're playing better because of the people standing and playing next to you. There's nothing better than that. I don't, you know, don't give me solo, soloist this, soloist that. That's all grand, but like, um, and it's its own thing. It's its own beautiful thing, but give me a band any day of the week. Like, um, yeah. And then. Yeah, for, for, perfect yeah, opportunity ahead. to talk about solace. I mean, how did it start? Yeah, it. So I was in, I was with Sharon's band at the time, and I think Seamus was still playing with Eileen and John Doyle and Kamate over here in the states. They were doing, you know, they, it was an an amazing band. Oh, it was called Chanting House. Their band was called Chanting House. You can Google it, and there's some great like bootleg recordings of them, just brilliant, right? And uh, it just so happens under that like the way things go, um people were kind of leaving the ensembles they were they were in at the time and I was Seamus and I were living together in New York I was away all the time with Sharon he was away all the time like on would it be the banjo tour or with Chanting House or whatever he was doing and then um we were doing a few you know a few little gigs together or just kind of messing around working on stuff and I remember sitting one day saying like you guys, you guys are leaving Chanton House. I'm leaving Sharon. We have the makings of a band here. Like, why? What are we doing? Like, we're all in New York. And then it turned out. Now this is crazy again. How the universe puts things in your on your path. Seamus and I found out that Karen Casey was living two doors down from us on East Ninetieth Street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We only found that out because Seamus and I were, did the first gig I ever did with Seamus. Um, now, we had been playing a lot in the house and working on little tracks and this and that, messing around. But the first gig that we ever did together was down at the Blarney Star. And it was billed as a duet gig. Just totally going for it, but not knowing, not expecting anything out of it. And it turned out that Karen Casey was in the audience. And someone said, you know there's a really great singer in here from County Waterford. She's only landed over in New York. You have to hear her. And at the intermission, Seamus and I met her and we asked her to get up and sing a song. And she did. And we were like, what the hell? Who is this? And oh my God, what a voice. And then we found out that night over a few pints with Karen that she was living two doors down. And we were like, this is insane. Like we were just talking about John, we're talking to John Doyle about starting a band. We want a singer. She's living there. She's not doing anything. Well, not that she wasn't doing anything, but she, she she was doing loads, but as a soloist, you know, or trying to get off the ground and be heard. And that was it. That was the start of Solace. We started rehearsing in me and Seamus's apartment, which was right next door to Karen's. John would come in from Brooklyn and the four of us started messing about and just jamming around in the house. And um, John Williams was the first accordion player that came to mind because we had been crossing paths and bumping into each other and his playing just, you know, as, as, as he was stateside first off, but his chordal sense and his harmonic sense, John Williams on the box was really a cool thing to imagine with John Doyle's sense of chordal structure and, or lack thereof at the time, 
Um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we decided, we decided to like, okay, let's just see what happens here. We'll put this five piece together. And we did a few demos and word got out to, uh, did we, I think we may have been bold enough to think that we could do an album at the time. We were only young ones and we approached Shanaki records. Seamus had a relationship with Richard Nevins at Shanaki records and Seamus sent Richard a house, just something that we recorded in the house. And we got a call, Seamus got a call and he was like, yeah, let's, you guys should do a record. And that was it. We recorded the first Solace album down in Philadelphia that same year. And then that was the start of it. And honest to God, Enda, like there was no, I, I promise you, there was no like, oh, we're going to take this on the road and it's going to get, we're going to end up recording 13 albums together and it'll go on for 25 years. And no, it was, it literally started that organically and purely because we were like, wow, this sounds kind of cool together. You guys, this sounds, this sounds kind of cool. We like where this is going. Um, yeah. And then that was it. The, the horse was out of the gate and, uh, then it was just mental when we were, now we're talking what we're talking the mid nineties. So 30 years ago. And, uh, it just, it snowballed and you know yourself better than anyone. Once the band gets on the road and people start hearing you and you start making this, whatever sort of an impact it is, and you're recording and the albums are getting out there and the tracks are getting this and so-and-so is using this track for that. And it just started to snowball really unexpectedly for, we were kind of totally caught off guard, like as kids, like, cause we were, we were kids, young adults. And um, that's it. And we were touring like madmen and madwomen and it was insane. And we were never home and we were always on the road. And it was like, we were, at that time, I'd say the hardest work in bands, definitely, whether it was to our benefit or to our detriment. And, you know, we can talk about that because it was hard going, but we were happy and we were making great music and we were seeing the world and it was amazing. And it was a, it was a great band. Like, um, so yeah. And then you know, then just do the math yourself. We we did it for 23 years and, you know, lineup changes and people got married, people had kids, people needed to do this, people, you know, exhaustion, mental health issues, uh, all of the stuff that happens on the road that I'm now able to kind of speak about and be comfortable with speaking about, like what that, what that does to you, what that does to your friends what that does to families. Um, you know, we were missing all of our family celebrations. We were missing our nieces and nephews growing up. In some cases, people were missing their own kids growing up. So, you know, rock and roll lifestyle on the road doesn't really get you very far personally. Um, and it can do a lot of damage, right? Uh, but as 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 young adults, we were powering through, powering through, powering through, keep going, keep taking the gigs. And I was like, I remember one one time turning around to Seamus saying, can we please, I'll tell you when it won. It was after September 11th. So it was 2001. So the band would have been together for probably six or seven years at that stage. And I remember saying to Shay, this might be the moment that we could take a break. 
after September 11th because the flights were not happening. The gigs were getting canceled that first couple of months. And we did, but it wasn't long enough. We lasted, we stayed off the road for like three weeks and then we were right back up again and running. And uh, the circle, you know, the locomotive was back on the tracks again. And it was just again then for another 10 years. So you can relate. You know how, you know what, what the touring does to you. Sure. But when you said we, 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 we took a break, I thought you were going to say six months. But three weeks isn't a break. That's just long. No, well, it was for some. It was for Solace, believe it or not. Wow. At that time, you can ask Seamus or Karen or John Doyle or Mick or, you know, at that point, John Williams had left because he had, his wife had just had twins like a couple of years before that. And so he had to make that call and he made the right call for him and his family, believe me. And now, you know, so some many, of us how made many, the call how, to stay on the road. <laughs> So how many how yeah. many dates a year were you doing? Because that sounds like a lot more than a hundred, which is, you know. Oh, it was a lot more than a hundred. And uh, back in the beginning, and we and then then we were all like, let's see, it would have been the late nineties, mid to late nineties. Then the only thing that was going to make sense was that we got a tour bus because we were on the road so much that we were flying way too much. I had a devastating fear of flying, still do. It's gotten a little bit better, but devastating fear of flying. And we were on the road so much. So we were like, and then the record company said, well, there's this thing called tour support. <laughs> um, we were selling a ton of albums for Shanaki and they were able to like give us, say, a big lump sum up front before we even did the tour. So we could hire a tour bus and make our lives what we thought <laughs> was going to be a little bit easier. So we were literally and uh, on the road. I think our longest tour we ever did was, and it's not uh, compared to some people, but without a break was like 13 weeks. No break. We'd have a couple of days off on the bus, but you were still together as a band living out of a suitcase. You know, so yeah, it was a lot. Um, the insanity of the road definitely started to play a huge role into well, I'll speak for myself, into my well-being um, and into my, my best friends, you know, because we were best friends, um, into into our well-being and our relationships started to suffer and do the math. I mean, but because it was Seamus's and my baby, really, we were just like, the band comes first, the band comes first, the band comes first. We've got to keep it going. It's what we do. It's what we love. It's our passion. It's, you know, it's our living. Um, and so, yeah, we just kept it going, even with lineup changes and yeah, so that was it. And I, I, you know, I'm sounding like exhausted talking about it and that it wasn't gratifying. It was so gratifying and such a satisfying way of, um, living. And, and, you know, we were constantly making music. The shows were great. The audiences were great. The crack was a hundred percent. Um, you there, know, we were going everywhere. Are there standout gigs that you remember? Oh. Yes. <laughs> There's a couple. And I think this would probably, if you asked any of the original lineup, um, and for each lineup, 
like along the way. There was a core group of musicians that stayed together, but for the original lineup, I would say one of the standout gigs was the first time we ever played in Ireland in Dublin at Whelan's. And the buzz and the excitement and the just the buzz was unbelievable. You know, there was busloads of people coming up from our hometowns, like my grandmother and my aunts and uncles got a bus up from Arklow up to Dublin. Karen's people came up from Waterford. John Doyle's family came down from Sligo. Seamus's relatives, whoever was around, you know, all of our friends. It was amazing. And like, I remember being doing the sound check at Whelan's. It was the first time we played in Ireland. And I remember Karen coming to me saying, Winnie, um, you know, it's sold out and people are asking for, she was like, I just went to get a cup of coffee and meet a friend and people are scalping tickets outside. Is there any way we can get so-and-so on the guest list? And like, it was that kind of a buzz, like, you know, and she was like, there's a line down the street. There's a line down the side of Whelan's and out whatever street that is. Is it Baggett Street? No. What street is that that Whelan's is on? Anyway. And so she said, you have to go out. And she said, I'm not lying to you. And I went out and I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. So that was a standout gig. And then the gig was amazing. It was packed to the rafters. Our Our grandparents were there, our friends. The place was packed with musicians and friends. And it was just brilliant. That's a huge memory for all of us. Um, I guess some of the others would be some of the festivals over in here, over here in the States. Like um, Solace was unique because, you know, we started doing loads of the Irish traditional festivals. But in my estimation, and I think in Seamus's estimation, we wanted and were craving more than just that. And so... Uh, you know, we had some really great guest artists with us on a couple of our first albums, and they were kind of from the bluegrass world. Um, and, you know, we were friendly with some of those amazing musicians, and they kind of were like, you guys should be playing, like, American bluegrass festivals as well as Irish festivals. Like, people are going to be really into what you guys are doing, blah, blah, blah. It's it's not, you know, you don't have to cross over. You don't have to turn into something that you're not. But so that, and that was kind of instigated by Bela, Bela Fleck and Iris Dement and a couple of the early uh, supporters of um, Seamus and, and Solace. So we got a few really good bluegrass festivals and they were standout performances because the bluegrass audience was just like, what is this? And what are these guys doing? Like, it kind of sounds a little bluegrassy, but it's not, you know, yourself, right? Yep. And so, yeah, they would have been standout gigs. And then of course, like playing in Spain and, you know, playing in t audiences in Galicia as the younger Sullis machine. Like it was, it was all great. Japan going over to Japan with Keiko and like, we were on the same bill as uh, one year we were with um, Cool Finn, Donald's Lunny's Cool Finn. And that was like epic. I mean, we were playing with like some of our heroes and we were only young ones and like, God, guys, this is just insane. And it's great. And, you know, I can honestly say, though, it didn't it didn't go to anyone's head. It was more what went to people's head was the toll that the road and the expectations of the road and the demands of the road. That's what got to our heads. Like the, 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 if you want to call it success and, and, uh, 
accessibility of Solace, um, that was just like, holy shit, this is great. This is really awesome. But, oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> you know, are you, are you holding up okay? Like physically, we were beating, beating ourselves up, playing so hard and our bodies were taking a hit and, and our, our hearts and hearts and souls and emotions were taking a hit too, you know, and our emotional well-being and physical well-being. So, and, and, and at the time you don't really, I think the gift of maturing and getting a little bit older is that you can actually step back and say, hmm, I don't think this is really good for us right now or good for me or good for you. And I still really care about you guys and I still really love you, but let's do what we have to do. And it took many years to get to that point of saying, we're starting to, you know, this is becoming, it's not sustainable right now. Can we please give it a break? And it was hard. It was really hard to stop. It was, it was very unsettling, but so much health and well-being and um, work went into, and I know for, 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 for everyone has gone in the years that we've been off the road now, everyone's way better and way healthier and way, you know, doing lots of good stuff musically. And, you know, that, that is amazing. And everyone's still here. <laughs> everyone's still here with us. How, how did you, is, how did you deal hmm. with that transition from that huge intensity for 23 years? Mm-hmm. And then stopping, like, what was that like? Um, it was, well, it was highly emotional because remember I was playing with my best friends, you know, um, and the people that I had, you know, pretty much handed my life to saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this with you. Um, and I know that, I know that's the case for the guys too. Like, um, I just know it. You know, we know this deep down, all of us know this, that it had to stop. But to answer your question, it was highly emotional. And uh, I know some of my friends and and colleagues and peers who were observing this for many years, I they said, they asked me, I, you know, are you okay? How are you? Is it, yeah, it's, it's great. You're going to get a break now and everyone's going to get a break and get some rest and get healthy. And And I remember describing it to someone in an interview once that asked me and I said, you know what it felt like? Like, do you know the scene in The Wizard of Oz where where Dorothy, the house from Kansas and Dorothy and Toto and they get caught up in that like tornado that comes through and lifts the house and it's the scene is like the house spinning and it's dark and there's things flying by and it's just absolute mayhem. And then the next scene is the house like lands in it's not even Oz, wherever it lands, and 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 there's like complete silence. And then the next scene is like Dorothy waking up, and she doesn't know where she is, and she goes outside, and there's this land of magic. It, that's how I described. It sounds really dramatic and over the top, but that's how I described it. It felt like that scene in in The Wizard of Oz, where the house was just spinning, out of control. Um, with no direction and no sense of what was going to happen or where it was going to land. And then when it landed with this massive thud, 
the silence was deafening. And and that's really the best way I could describe it. And like, it was necessary and it was needed, but um, it was unsettling. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I was, yeah, I was kind of like, no, this needs to be this way. It needs to be this way. Everyone needs to just be away from each other and off the road and like stop with the, st- the noise needs to stop, you know? And um, I am so grateful for that now. It was the best gift and the best decision we could have made, even though it was devastating at the time. And it was like, what do you, you know, I can't stop, but it did. And like I said, everyone is still here and everyone is way healthier and um, everyone's making music again. And you can start to feel that and you can feel the music in even individually. Like don't, don't for a minute think that I don't know exactly what Seamus is doing or that he doesn't know exactly what I'm doing or that we're not listening to, to each other's work or, you know, minding from afar. And even that goes for our other peers and colleagues, like everyone's creating and you're starting to hear this again. And it sounds healed. <laughs> it's starting to sound like there's been some healing and I don't know. Does that make sense to you in yeah, a way? Yeah. What What would it take for Solace to come back together? Oh, <laughs> well, never say never. <laughs> I'll just leave you with that. <laughs> um, have, do, do, no, there, there. It's it's. Look at, I I couldn't go through the rest of my life without playing with and working with Seamus again, and the same goes for him. And I know that sounds like, you know, but since we were, we were the core of it for so many years, the two of us, and it was kind of like, um, like I think of it as our baby, like, right. Um, now the baby has gotten, it, 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 it went through a lot. It, it was a baby. And then it went through its baby years and its teen years and its adult, you know, young adult years. The baby might be mature enough now to and rested enough now to, yeah, think about reconnecting and recreating and um, writing together. And, you know, I said it to Seamus actually quite recently, like, I if it does happen, I need it. We need it. And it has to be 100% kick-ass. <laughs> and so... Like that, there you go again. It's like, it's, it's about the quality and the, it's about the quality of the music always. It always has been. And, and like, so that, that, that's like, well, what would, what would, what would keep you from doing it again when, you know, what, what, what would, what would be a deal breaker or what, you know, for all of us, like, you know, for whoever wants to be involved in this, what would be a deal breaker? And it's always like, well, it, it would have to be absolutely kick-ass. Would you, you know? wor- would you be worried in, in any sense that that you would end up revisiting that kind of physical and mental toll? Or are you all wiser now? I think everyone's wiser. I look, I, I, I know that I do know that I'm wiser. I know that Seamus is wiser. I know that everyone has all their other solo careers going on and multiple other projects. You know, I don't know what 
a uh, Sullis re reboot or whatever you want to call it, a Sullis reunion or a Sullis, yeah, reboot or um, just trying to uh, pull back that essence of Sullis would be like or would look like physically, but I know what it will sound like. It will, I know, <laughs> I know that it will be quality. As far as um, being up against or putting ourselves ever again into a situation like that frenetic, unsustainable um, freight train, no, that that is a deal breaker for 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 me and for Seamus um and and you know talking about it like if if we were to ever get back and go back out on the road again it would have to be only you know very manicured um careful and planned and not just be on the road for the sake of being on the road like do you know and and uh I you know I would absolutely be over the moon for that to happen again. And in my heart, I know it will, you know, and I'm sharing with you now on the podcast, but um, I think a lot of people would be happy if it did. A lot of our friends and our, our, our peers would be happy that and I'm, I, you know, just look, look around us, look at all these reunions and these things are, that are happening now. Um, it's, it's just such a, you know, not to validate anything, Enda, but to recreate the, the essence and the beauty of what once was. Sometimes that's really hard, though. But like, even for example, now, like, look at the Bathy band after how many years? And like, I, I can't wait. And I'm hoping that I'm going to get to see that live because look at, we all grew up with that. That was like, you know, God, the sound they made. And, you know, now like we know them, I know them personally and they're friends and colleagues. Right. And I saw a snippet recently of a, of, I guess it was a Celtic connections thing that they did. And I am nothing but so, so happy for them. Um, regardless of what, they're producing and sounding like now they've only just gotten back together after 50 years of traveling the world separately being in i don't know hundreds of other ensembles give them this moment of like reconnection and and let's just celebrate that that's how i i mean i'm so delighted for all of them i mean it must be imagine it must be a massive personal uh, reconnection for all of them too, sitting on the stage together for the first time in 50 years. And, you know, it's a really powerful thing. Um, being oh, in a band, you know, but what do you think? Oh no, go ahead. Um, well, gonna... I, this is the question that I wanted to ask you and yeah. is that, do you, do you have that kind of felt sense of how enormous and how influential Solace was? Because I think musicians, particularly ones that are creative, well, they're all creative, but that, that are, you know, progressing through um, different projects. You know, we tend to look forward, like what's coming next? What's the next thing? Oh, I have this idea. I have 10 ideas. Right. Um, sometimes it's it's hard to stand still and look back and go, wow. <laughs> and I wonder, did the Bati band go, oh, 
you know, we were in the Bathy band, so we don't think of it as the Bathy band. Right. Whereas everyone else is like, oh my God, it's the Bathy band. They're right. like, well, it was just us, you know? How, how yeah. do you feel about that in relation to Solace? Like, and in no way, honestly, must be said, comparing, look at different times, different projects, different people, different ensembles, the value, we all know the value and the, um, yeah, the, the, the immense value that the Bathy Band has and has had uh, on the trajectory of the progression and the, the the life of Irish traditional music, right? It's massive, right? I would hope that, um, you know, my biggest hope would be that in some ways over the years that I and Seamus and the members of Sullis and Sullis as the entity of Sullis and some of the recordings that we made and some of the concerts that we played have had even a fraction of the impact that the Bathys have had on, on us. Now I'm speaking about like, it's really important to me that younger, the younger generation generations, the younger ones coming up, who I know some of the younger kids listening to older recordings of the Bathys are like, oh my God, what is that? Or same now, now we're, we're the older ones, right? So less of the old, they're, we're old, right? So they're listening to old recordings that were, that were did 30 years ago. And they're like, oh my God, hopefully that's what they're thinking. Wow. This is, what are they doing? And how are they, you know, um, that that's really for me like i i never think it's like what you just said very well i was in solace i was there from start to end and i only i'm a member of solace i don't think of it like oh my god it's i don't think of it like that at all until some of my students or some of the younger ones come up and say oh my god i was listening to you when i was listening to solace i was listening to Seamus. i was when I, since i've been a kid and you know, I love that track. I can't believe that track. And, you know, when when some of the sets you recorded may have, might be considered, you know, part of the tradition now, like a Bathy set. There's a couple of sets I know that, like, I'll go into a pub or a session and people, you know, they happened recently here in New York. I was doing a few sessions over the fall and, uh, the the players would start off with like a set from one of the first or second Solace albums. And I would be kind of like mortified say, thinking to myself, Oh God, you don't have to play that just because I'm here. Like, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I, you know, and they'd be like, no, no, come on, play it, play it, you know? So that's really rewarding. It's also, it's a, it, you know, it's like a timestamp, isn't it too? And uh, there are timestamps in this moving, growing, living, breathing, hopefully always evolving um, culture of ours. Also, of when, you know, when music is, is that good, like the Bathy Band mm -hmm. and like Solace, it, it's timeless and it's always relevant. So there's Solace tracks that are always relevant. They don't sound like something that was recorded 30 years ago. And as you said, you played the Bathy Band for somebody now. They're like, whoa, what, what's that? <laughs> awesome mm -hmm. bazooki harpsichord oh my god right so when yeah. it's good enough so as an outsider i wasn't in solace i wish it was i, <laughs> I probably would have died but anyway no i would have <laughs> you i would have minded you <laughs> no doubt mm -hmm. i can say that solace has the very same influence and stature as 
music like the Bhakti Bhakti, without a shadow of a doubt. It's oh immense. God. It's immense music. And to thank you so much. It means it, and it really does mean so much. And it's, oh God, you know, like trying to put into like a little capsule, encapsulate the lifespan of the band, what it was for all intents and purposes, like 25 years, say, right? And, you know, let's be honest, there, there's, 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 really great moments really memorable moments really amazing standout tracks and at the end of the day we're humans so then there's there's tracks i listen to and i'm like oh my god we definitely should have not have what were we thinking what how could we let that go or oh my god i'm so glad that we went for that and that we didn't listen to like the inner critics or the critics from outside lots of critics from outside saying oh it's not traditional enough or it's you're you're stepping outside the boundaries or you're destroying the tradition and well there's so many tracks that i listen to and i'm like guys i'm so glad we stuck to our guns and we just you know but on the opposite side of that coin like i said we're human and you know it's never always 100 percent um that's art though that's art right I mean, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said about sharing and showing without fear or without fear of retribution or fear of criti criticism of sharing your vulner vulnerabilities musically. And of course, then that connected to like your emotional output and, and yourself, your essence as a human, like if you can share that and not be worried about like it's hard it's really hard because like look at let's be honest as as musicians i'm always concerned and thinking about what my peers my fellow musicians are going to think that's being brutally honest and i don't know i hope i i'm pretty sure most musicians think like that when you go in to record a track uh, not like when okay a record of course you're thinking about what you're doing at the time and you know worried about this and like, well, let me do that again. Or, but for the most part, you're in my head. It's like, well, are my heroes, my heroes, going to listen to this and be like, yeah, she nailed it, or that's good enough, and or they nailed it, or holy moly, listen to those, listen to those feckin' triplets, you know, that Seamus is getting out of that banjo or the mandolin or whatever, you know. And and I do think that that's a responsibility also that we have as as musicians. Like I was saying to the younger generations and to the younger kids coming up learning, that's a responsibility. We owe it to them to be the best that we can be. Nothing else is really good enough. But like I said, we're humans. So sometimes there's that really natural ebb and flow of, you know, most... I do most of Solis Solis's stuff is really good. It strikes some, it. It strikes me that, that I, some stuff that I wish never saw the light of day, but that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It, it it strikes me that there's it, it's probably not recognized how courageous musicians, artists are to put anything into the world. Because I think in order to create in any sense, there's a vulnerability that needs to exist. 
in order for this creativity to come through. But then to take that and put it into the world, I don't think a lot of people realize how remarkably courageous it is to go. I made this. Here you go. Yeah. I'm run the gauntlet of like, oh, it's not as good as the last one or, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. And uh, right. So that that is an absolute. Um, you know, there's fear. There's self-doubt. There is. Oh, we could talk about imposter syndrome for days if you like. Um, I know that I suffer from it. I know that a lot of my colleagues and friends suffer from it to a degree. I 100% don't, this is going to be sound like a really strong statement to make, but I I don't trust, 100% don't trust artists that don't have an element of that, um, not self-doubt because that can be crippling, but um, needing it and wanting it to be so good before they put it out into the world, right? And like, you have to be careful. We have to be careful. Yes, we need to give so much credit to our fellow artists and musicians who create and put it out there. But behind the scenes, we have no clue what's going on. Like, so for example, you know, imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. It can't, it can't it's not good enough. It's it's going to be judged. It's going to be this. It's, it's you know, um, or someone saying, geez, it's been a long time since you guys wrote anything. Like you wrote or when it's been ages since you wrote tunes or, you know, wrote, wrote, wrote pieces like, and I, and I, I'd want to tell them, well, it's because for the last 10 years, I've been feeling completely in some ways crippled, crippled is not the right word. Um, this, yeah, the imposter syndrome of like, for some reason it, it came into my head that maybe my stuff wasn't good enough. Um, and, but as any artist moving through this world, there's ebbs and there's flows. And I feel like I know I'm getting my power back. I'm getting my power back. And and that feels really good. I'm not saying I'm 100% confident. No way. But I'm, I'm, I'm feeling brave enough and solid and rested and healed enough to actually start trying to put it out there again you know and and that's being brutally honest and sometimes you need to go away sometimes we need to pull into ourselves and and hibernate and you know um it's really great when other people and your friends and your i keep saying peers and colleagues because they're so important that they say to you or you you encourage and you know there's not enough of that in this business right you say you are good enough holy moly people miss you or um you know don't be so hard on yourself why are you being so hard on yourself you know it is really good and you know it's only going to get better if you keep working at it don't don't give up <laughs> this is the encouragement this is the thing that i think this is the vibe that we need, especially for the younger kids coming up when it's all about competition and all about who's doing what and who's busier than this one and who's doing more gigs. And no, who's no, got more followers that's on not... TikTok. <laughs> there you go. Enza. There you go. Holy moly. That whole world like that didn't exist when when we first when Solace first got together. It was like old school word of mouth and getting out there and 
playing live shows and just word of mouth and anyway yeah it's a it's a whole different beast these days um but so look what, you know what what have you what's coming up for you now this I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I want to know what, what, what no, you no, no, it's okay. I don't want to keep you. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, well, I've been playing in this new project, this new project called Reverie Road. I don't know if you're aware of it at all, mm-hmm. but um, oh, well, good. And so this is it's a it's a project that was kind of born out of the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, yeah, so those couple of years were really weird for everybody. And and I feel really weird for me because I wasn't even really playing at all. I was doing a couple of duet trio gigs with Utsaf Lal, the pianist, who's in Reverie Road. And he appeared on some of my solo album tracks over the last couple of years. But I wasn't out on the road working or gigging. Um, I think I remember running into you guys to We Banjo 3. I remember running into you guys at Boston Logan Airport. And it was after Solace had... Um, decided to take a sabbatical and I ran into you guys and you guys were just coming off a pretty heavy summer tour over here in the States. And I remember saying, Oh guys, good luck. Like I, I'm, I'm off the road now for a bit and I'm kind of okay with that. Right. But, Oh, did I start to get the need to scratch the itch again? You know, after a few years of being sort of quiet um, and I did a few things, I hosted a radio program, on bluegrass country radio and that was great i got to curate programs with loads of different music so that was a real sort of uh catalyst for me starting to listen to like loads of new music loads of great bands loads of young bands coming out of ireland and scotland and i was like oh man i really want to start playing again i really want to start creating again and and i had been working with katie grennan online during the covid pandemic doing a lot of online teaching and fiddle fiddle workshops and fiddle camps and and I love her to bits and we just said I had been playing with Utsaf Utsaf and I sent Katie and John Williams um a couple of demo tracks that Utsaf and I had been working on kind of quietly in here in New York and we were like let's just combine forces and continue to work together after when we come out of the covid pandemic so that's how organic that was it was like oh we just really want us to keep working together and um, let's just combine forces, you and John and myself and Utsaf. And it's a different sound. Um, Utsaf's piano playing is, oh my God, there's nothing like it. It's like otherworldly. And um, it's not that same, you know, driving thing that the solace thing was. Um, it's more, I don't know how I would describe it. Maybe a little bit more classically based or sounding or something i don't know i mean we we have the new album done and of course i wasn't going to let it out without like some guitar on it so of course i went to my dear buddy donna donna hennessy did some guitar work on the album for us because i was like no Uh, okay so we're going to be a quartet but i want and i need and we need the, the 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 rhythm um on some of these tracks so that's it. Like we're just, and we're we're heading out now on a big spring tour, winter spring tour here in the states with the new CD, with the new Reverie Road CD. That's a decent enough tour, you know. And I'm, we're just going to see how it goes. We started last week. We did a couple of gigs here on the East Coast, and they went well. We've done a few gigs over the last year, but this is like the, this is the test now. And uh, Sullis's old agent, um, for Myriad Artists reached out to me last year and she was like, oh, okay, I heard that you're working on this new project and I heard a few little sneaky bits on the internet. Um, do you guys want an agent? I think you need to get out there and start gigging this. 
And so that's that's where we're at. I mean, I was kind of a little bit like apprehensive to kind of go back into like the solace world of like, you know, our old agent and, you know, how's this going to work? But it's fine. It's it's working. And uh, I'm really excited and really proud of some of the tracks and some of the music we're making. And I cannot wait for Utsaf to be introduced to the world of, of, I mean, a lot of people know about him, but he hasn't really been heard that much. But oh, my God. Oh my God, he's so beautiful, and it definitely. So go, go ahead. Yeah. So where can where can folks find out about Reverie Road? Uh, so the 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 website is reverieroadmusic.com. dot com, and uh, it's myself on fiddle, Katie Grennan on fiddle, formerly of Gaelic Storm, and Johnny Williams on on accordion, um, my former soloist bandmate, and then Utsaf Lal on piano and just for those who don't know what oh just check google utsaf lal he was born in new delhi in india but spent uh his formative years in ireland just outside of dublin playing with his teenage friends like hosier <laughs> and he was in a little band called little green cars and god they got signed to me blah 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 all this stuff about utsaf he's amazing and he ended up again and uh, how the how the universe throws you curveballs and puts you in people's lives. Uh, Utsaf ended up coming to Boston, and he was in my one of my classes at the conservatory, one of my ensemble classes. We ended up meeting there, and honest to God, it was like right away. I was like, oh my God, I need to play with this guy and him the same. And he was a Solace fan as a kid and that whole thing, and we started playing together. Yep, and now... Now we have Reverie Road, and it's uh, it's a really gorgeous little project. Wonderful! I, I, I'm ex- I, I, yeah, I'm really excited to hear it. And uh, hey, do you want me to send you a couple of tracks? I don't know if you have any. I'll yeah. send you. Yeah, I'll yeah. send you a couple of tracks. If you, I don't know if you're thinking of splicing music into this. No, at it's, all. Yeah, yeah. For the podcast, one will. Yeah, when I put it on YouTube, it gets a bit weird, but that's okay. Yeah, I'll send you some new stuff because there's a yeah. bunch of new stuff and. I don't even know. There's a couple of solo solo tracks that you might not be aware of. I know you have some solo stuff, but um, yeah, it's all good. Wynn, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I feel we we could go for hours, but it's been an absolute pleasure. My goodness, what a story. It's great. And And it's great. And it's such a pleasure to reconnect after a bunch of years now and see see you and and chat and you're looking well and how are you feeling you're asking me how i'm doing how are you doing you good <laughs> this is my podcast get your own yeah, podcast <laughs> oh no wait don't you, you don't have to worry about that i'm not i'm not hijacking the podcast i promise you but no, I'm, doing, you're doing well. I'm, do, I'm doing good I, you know i'm i'm in transition i'm yeah i'm 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 doing like really immersive uh very in-depth banjo tutorial videos here right. And 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 I make them available online. And I'm essentially I'm teaching like 360 banjo players around the world now, mm-hmm. and interacting Wonderful. with them and and the whole the whole shebang, you know. And Wonderful. it's 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 great. Mm-hmm. And it's been a year, uh, but I'm starting to feel no more than yourself, like just a little pull, yes, to go and create something, yes. But I'm but I'm not rushing it, and I'm not putting any pressure. I'm just kind of letting it. You know, trying to give it a little bit of space to see what happens because I don't want to rush back into, oh my God, I have to, you know, get back and do something. It'll be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's it. Um, and and you know what? If I can give you 
as a friend and a colleague and an admirer and a fan of, of, of your playing and a fan of the projects that you've been involved in, We Banjo 3, listen to your gut. Trust your gut always. And that's another thing we have to do as, as musicians and artists. We have to learn to trust our gut. Sometimes we, we ignore it and we, you know, that's the, the least healthy way to make decisions. Um, and sometimes our in, in, intuition is definitely affected by our surroundings and what's going on around us. If you can sit back for a while, don't rush it. Just trust your instinct and your gut and, and it'll happen. It will. Cause you're talking to someone who was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm over it. I'm, I'm finished, <laughs> you know? So organically and however it needs to happen, you know, it will happen because you're the musician you are. So yeah. just trust your gut. Beautiful. And, uh, that, yeah. yeah per a perfect way to finish. Wayne, uh -huh. thank, you, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna press. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.